Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Sam Alexander with your news. Early this morning, dairy residents awoke to find flyers posted all over town for a new nightclub opening in nearby Jerusalem's lot. While some may find it odd that a relatively dead town like the lot would open a nightclub, I find it more odd that the hours of operation vary by almanac sundown. With marketing this aggressive, I sure hope they have enough to drink. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Bleh! <laughs> Today we are covering uh, the first half of Salem's Lot, which is chapters one through chapter nine. And Ben will be leading our discussion today. So take it away, Ben. All right, guys. You know, before we get into it, I uh, I just wanted to get everyone's overall feelings on the book before we even dive in. Was I the only one that's read this one? I read it a long time ago. Same. Josh. I've never read it. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talk uh, on our group chat a lot between recordings, and you guys didn't seem super... Uh, super into this one. <laughs> I wanna. What, what's your What's your overall feelings so far? All right, the first half. I um, I, I was uh, kind of bored. Uh, okay, now here's here's my my counterbalance to how much I not really enjoying the first half. That uh, Needful Things is one of my favorite books, which is a very mm-hmm. similarly structured book because it's a whole town there's tons of characters so as soon as i thought i found out salem's lot was this style i was like hell yeah let's do it but there's so much time in this first half talking about their day-to-day bullshit that i did not care for yeah sorry cm i just wanted to point out because i i had the same thought and in the edition of the book that i was reading there is a foreword by stephen king where he talks about uh, a lot of uh why he wrote the book, how he came to write his, of this book, because it is his second novel that he released. And he says that Carrie seems almost fey by comparison. In a way, this book was my coming out party. And I felt that's very true, because this is kind of the prototypical king small town epic. Where you have not just the main characters, but the entire town. Structurally, it's very similar to specifically Needful Things. A little bit of It, uh, Under the Dome, has the very, like, similar structure. Um, So so what did you think, CM? Oh, sure. After you tell me what Stephen King thinks about it, you know what? (laughs) You just say what I think about it. (laughs) That shows you how much your opinion means to me, (laughs) It's true. All right. Okay, well, it's become clear as I go through this entire first half that this book is about one character, and that character is the town Jerusalem's Lot. And the people in this town are so wrapped up in their own junk, their junk that's not going very well for them, that they don't see the darkness that's creeping right up on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good summation. Yeah, like, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like, <laughs> And in summary, uh, we might as well get into it. For those of you who haven't read along, uh, Salem's Lot is the story of Jerusalem's Lot, Maine, a small village in southern Maine. And the author, surprise, Ben Mears, uh, returning to his hometown after years to find it in the grips of vampires let's not beat around the bush like the book does for (laughs) the first uh 300 pages (laughs) yes it really it really takes its time vampiring yeah i I had the same feeling of like it kind of drags for a little bit i thought it was strange because the prologue of the book immediately grabbed me the prologue we start the book at the end of the book a a man and the boy Uh, We don't even know who these characters are yet. We just know a man and a boy are traveling across the country 
Uh, I believe the first line is, most people thought the man and the boy were father and son. Ben, do you think that starting with the end in this particular situation did something for the book? I would argue yes. What is that thing it did? It got me through the slog of the first <laughs> <Okay>. half. <laughs> because I thought this prologue was uh, was interesting. It, it made me go, what happened? It made me want to get through a whole bunch of mm-hmm. who are these people and why do I care? To get to the end of who are these two characters? Who is the man and the boy? And what happened to them? What what were you thinking? I'm really picky about movies, especially, that do that when you start at the very end and then you go back. And Mm -hmm. I find more often than not that it's done for no purpose. And it's really frustrating. Like, don't use that unless you're going to use it for something really awesome. And as you were talking about it, I was trying to decide if I felt like it added something to the book. Hmm. The thing that I think that is important about that that prologue is that it, that it ends with them being like, now's the time to go back. So mm. if this was just, uh, you know, the end of Shawshank where they've tr- they've traveled to wherever they're going and and they're staying there and that's where their story ends, that'd be one thing. But the fact that uh, they talk about how the boy has nightmares about this place, that the tall man keeps getting newspapers from the the Portland Post Herald, mm-hmm. that they're staying connected to Jerusalem's lot and then in the end decide now's the time to go back that made me very interested like oh all right so like this this isn't exactly the end and there's gonna be something else we're gonna eventually catch up to this and see where it actually ends and that made me really interested like what happened that's so bad they fled so far but is so important they're willing to go back I really liked that the old priest asked the man if he's if he knew what he did. Like, do you know what you've done? Yeah. The, the, this young man and this boy, they travel across the country and they end up uh, in a small remote town in Mexico. Um, and the boy goes to the church and uh, tells the man that he's he's going to start studying and be baptized into Catholicism. And uh, there, there's an old priest where they tell him everything. And yeah, the priest, uh, y- you know what you have to do now, right? And they're like, shit, yeah. <laughs> and the prologue ends with the, the man and the boy uh, looking into each other's eyes. And the boy asks him, do you love me? And the man says, yes, God, yes. And they head back. That, that wasn't, like, gripping to you guys? Oh, that 100% no, that, gripped me. I was that, like, that part I'm of it was in. Great. Uh, I liked the prologue. I just was trying to figure out where it fit how yeah. and how it fit. Hmm. Yeah. Why is this important? Why is it important mm-hmm. to start yeah. the story I, here? Yeah, I'm I like not a, against a it. I just, I just need, I need it to be meaningful to the rest of the story. Fair. We then start chapter one, part one, The Marston House. If uh, the town of Jerusalem's lot is the main character, I would argue the Marston house is almost the antagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Because holy shit, do they talk about the Marston house. (laughs) We pick up the story. It's a year prior to this prologue in Mexico. And the author, Ben Mears, is driving into Jerusalem's lot. Ben Mears is... Talk about Ben Mears as a character. All right, this is going to be a stretch. Ben is a protagonist in a Stephen King book where he's a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, the end. And he (laughs) writes, uh, which Ben turned out to be different than I thought he would be because I'm used to Stephen King writer protagonists. Oh, I thought you were going to say because he's different than me. (laughs) (laughs) He is also different than our Ben. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because he kind of starts out the same, like jumping ahead a little, like he... You know, he's writing a new book and Mm. he's got all this stuff. But then, unlike other Stephen King protagonists, when shit gets real, he up and fucks that book and just gone and has (laughs) other things to do. Yeah. And I feel like he doesn't play the role of that that character that can make those sort of illogical leaps Mm -hmm. in the story. And it's excused because they're a writer. Yeah. I feel like in part of it, that was more 
Matt's role. Yeah, it was it was Matt kind of brought that out in like everybody turned to Matt for that the approval of like yes, this is a thing we can trust because Matt said it. And mm. Ben's writing career made it just easier for him to jump on board with Matt or right ar- away. Like, articulate it yeah, to the to others. articulate it to each other. Not only his writing career, but his history with the town. Mm-hmm. We find out that Ben Mears lived in Salem's Lot for four years as a child. He lived in this small cottage out on a small barn road with his aunt. Even though it was for only four years, he considers Salem's Lot his hometown. He loves the place as he remembers it. And he's returning because he's wanting to write a book about the town and specifically about the Marston's house. And the Marston's house is this giant gothic mansion sitting atop of a hill that is apparently viewable from every single point of Salem's Lot. <laughs> yeah, they go to great lengths to say that it overlooks literally everything all the time. And throughout the book, literally no matter where anyone is, <laughs> m- just countless times a character will be like, he looked out the window and stared at the Marston's house. And it's like, where are you? <laughs> Salem's Lot was built so that all windows only face the Marston yes. house. And uh, as he's driving back, he he thinks about this. He had this traumatic experience uh, in the Marston's house. And he wants to rent the place, but never go upstairs. Is he fleeing one tragedy back into the arms of another? Possibly. Oh, um, man. Because yeah. we also <laughs> yeah, find out Ben was in a terrible motorcycle accident that killed his wife, Miranda, who we never learn anything about. Right, yeah. Which I thought was, that's his tragic backstory that completely treats his wife as a plot convenience, uh, which I I thought was... Well, you know, he's moved on to an 18-year-old. Okay, let's let's talk about this. Let's Uh, talk about Susan Norton. (laughs) Chapter one is just Ben thinking about a house. It's it's, uh, not super important. Stephen King does write a pretty good haunted house. I oh will my god! Admit. I love his haunted houses. I wish I I wanted to I wanted us to go in the house like, <laughs> in the house. And yeah. that was another thing that immediately grabbed me is him though the way the information is doled out in parts really keeps you going. Saying he went upstairs as a child and saw something terrible. Whoa, whoa! What was it? What was it? I want to know. Uh, which got me through. Chapter two, meeting Susan. <laughs> Susan Norton. Ben is is walking through town, and he he's visiting and seeing all these sites from his childhood. And he's walking through a park, and he sees a pretty young girl reading one of his books. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he sees his own face on the back cover of the book she's reading, and is like, "Hey." He's thirty four. He is thirty two years 32. old. Okay. This is very important. (laughs) He sees this young girl reading his book and he starts up and and it's essentially Stephen King writing a meet Meet cute. cute. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 100%. And, you know, at first I was like, okay, I I get this. This makes sense. And uh, Ben says that, you know, it feels like fate that they were drawn together. How strange that he's been in town for half an hour or something. And he meets this nice young girl. And takes her to ice cream. And yeah, they get along <laughs> so well that he invites her on a date to go get ice cream at the Where local soda shop. She dips her head to suck at the straw. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, come on, vampires. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay, whatever. A bit of a stretch, but I'll buy it. I, I did take a lot of those notes of like, oh, this character what says is- they're eating something. Eh, uh. get it? Uh, but he he invites her out to ice cream and they go on this nice little date and they're talking. And at one point, Susan mentions that she was born the year of the fire. And we learn that in 1951. Salem's Lot had a huge fire that burned down 
you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, and, it burned uh, down like a third of the town. Yeah, and uh, out in the marshes, there are still fire-scarred patches of land. Ben's response is, that makes you seven years older than I thought in the park. And I wrote, <laughs> wait, 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 <laughs> I, I wrote, wait, what the fuck? Ben is 32. How old is Susan? And then in all caps, this is very important. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. I totally missed that. I did too. Oh man, I was immediately like, wait, he is already like very much emphasizing how young she looks. And if he thought she was uh, uh. 11? <laughs> I did the math. I did the math. Oh. Okay, good. It is 1975. Okay. The fire was in 1951. That makes Susan 24 years old. He's 32. Eh, okay. Okay. Is, I, okay. I thought, I thought she was 18. But that means that when Ben invited her to ice cream, he thought she was 17, 17. years old. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, stand by what I said earlier. <laughs> gross. That's well, just my that's that, my whole note. That's gross. the whole gross. <laughs> that fits with later when he goes and he gives a lecture at the high school. And in my head, I was trying to make it a college because he was talking about how Ruthie's a real hot piece of ass. High school student. Oh, coming off of Carrie. <laughs> this is his second book. And he wrote Carrie, if you'll remember, specifically to be like, I can write a book. With strong women about about women that's yeah. oh boy women oh. are not treated great in this book. <laughs> what 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 did you guys think of Susan as a character? I liked Susan. I liked that she had that um, that small town that small town girl you know trope of uh, wanting to get out of this place and she's only resigning to the life that she's living because it's the life within her means right now. Sure. Uh, and the as her relationship with Ben progresses, you see what I would think of as the real Susan, the one who, like, now that she sees that her life might have options outside mm. of this town, like, you see she's a little more ambitious. You you see how the, the desire for adventure and to make her life bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. It's a little depth, right? For reasons I can't articulate, I don't like Susan so far. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fair. She, uh, something about her character just gets on my nerves. It's it's very, it's the way King writes her. Because right after that bit, like, she's like, I I'm going to move to the big city. I'm an artist. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the damn thing. And King immediately then describes how hot she is. <laughs> like at first i'm like all right she she you know has goals she's like a young woman doing it for herself and then she's like king is like yeah and her hair's super nice and really <laughs> fills out that sweater and it's like wait come See, on we never get that with men like yeah his jeans are tight he's got a penis <laughs> yeah i, I want to know how, he's got a penis how big is ben's dick <laughs> right <laughs> As We've actually had podcast listeners send us that question. They knew we were gonna, they knew we were going to read this book. Now those questions finally make sense from oh, Reddit. I've been answering those wrong. <laughs> uh, can we call the main character a different thing just to <laughs> avoid call him confusion? We could just call him by his last name. Yeah, I like that. Call me something. Manly Wellman. Manly Wellman. Sure, Manly right. Wellman. Or All Blue. Right. That's oh, for listeners of the first yeah. three episodes. <laughs> they go out for ice cream. It's real meat cute. Then we have uh, our first introduction to kind of our side characters. Uh, in a bit that I really love, we meet who might be my favorite tertiary character in the book, uh, Parkins Gillespie, <laughs> the local uh, sheriff. Sheriff. Yeah. 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 He's, yeah. <laughs> he's he's just this old main stereotype who uh is sitting on the on the steps of the police station when uh his deputy Nolly Gardner, who's uh this book's uh Barney Fife stand, <laughs> there's always one, yep. walk up and they see Ben and Susan and they act as kind of a Greek chorus. 
for this part of the book, which I had hoped would continue throughout the book (laughs) of we'd see the other people in the town and they're just like remarking on the story that we're actually caring about. (laughs) They're filling in other blanks. Yeah, Yeah. because they're sitting there like, looks like that newcomer's uh, making with the Norton girl. Oh, Floyd, Floyd Tibbetts won't like some stranger going with his gal. Uh, I heard he wanted to rent out the Marston place. Oh, it's already rented out. And it's just exposition. All right. It's great. On that note, the when I read that, the first note I made was, how long has been in, how long has Mears been in town? Because they know an awful lot about everything Mm -hmm. he's interested in. And the way it's written, it sounds like he drove up to the Marston house, took a look at it, then drove down to the town and ran into Susan at the park. Like it, Reads as though those things happened all simultaneously, but he has rented a room in a place. Mm-hmm. He has in, must have inquired about the house because everybody in town knows it. Like there's no passage of time here. I was so confused. Well, and I think that's in part like maybe he's been there a couple days, say, but also it does not take long for any news mm-hmm. to spread in Jerusalem's lot, thanks in large part to Mabel Wirtz. 90% of the side characters that we will get to in chapter three, I have no idea what their names are. They are, there are interesting stories happening in the lot, but the characters, they are all so completely disconnected Mm -hmm. from the plot that like multiple times I would like it would go back to one of these side characters and I'd go, wait, wait, who is this? Oh, right. Yeah. It's the farm boys. I did that like, a couple times. And that's yeah. what I was saying in the first part, what I thought about the book, how mm-hmm. they're they're all wrapped up in kind of these shitty lives. Yeah. And they're just blind to what's coming because there's, you know, babies being beaten and wives Oof. being beaten and yeah, it's uh, not rats great. being murdered by the dozens. <laughs> I know how you feel about rats. I Sam. love rats. <laughs> <laughs> I know that had to be really hard for you to read. Of all of those things, you were just most upset about the rats. <laughs> Don't try to hide it. Yeah, so so this is kind of our our introduction. We Parkins and Nolly talking about giving uh, the history, and yes, information travels quickly in the lot. But time passes slowly Mm -hmm. because the town feels timeless. I was listening to this in my car on the way to work one day. Mm. And it was the scene where the the old men in the grocery store. Yes. And their conversation occurs over like the course of a lifetime. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, I I could not live in this town. That would drive (laughs) me insane. Yeah, it's the way this is one of the better uh, towny sections. It's just uh, these like five or six old men sitting in out front of a general store and having the the main style of new man in town. Yeah. Five minutes past. Yes. Yeah. Literally, it's just written that way. It's yeah. like half an hour later, one of them responded, what you thinking about those folks that rented the Marston place? Long, long pause. <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of, yeah, time... The, the lot seems timeless uh, because uh, Vietnam is happening or has recently ended. I don't know. I'm not a history major. Uh, they're eating in this 1950s soda shop. The Marston house is decades old. Who knows how old? And it just feels like unstuck in time. Mm-hmm. The whole town. Uh Speaking of the Marston house, interesting uh, uh, part happens here. We learn the history. And the the history is awesome. That was so cool. I wanted so much more. Kind of like when we were talking about the breathing method a few episodes ago. Mm -hmm. And you wanted more of, we all wanted more of the club. I wanted more of the Marston house and Hubie Marston's background and what he was doing and his relationship with others that we find later. could be. There could be so many spin-offs from this book, I feel, that would be just as good or more interesting than the book that this is, because there is so much world building. 
And we actually have one of those spinoffs. It, it exists. In the book, we, we hear a little bit of the founding of the town, even before the Marston House. We're told that the lot was founded in, 19, in 1765 and named after a man named Charles Belknap's, uh, Belknap Tanner's pig, uh, Jerusalem, yeah. which went feral and <laughs> ran into the woods. Which is amazing. <laughs> which is great, but also not true. What? There's a short story that uh, I read. It is in King's uh, short story collection, Night Shift, called Jerusalem's Lot. And I'll try to keep this short, but it is an amazing short story that you guys should read. Jerusalem's Lot takes place in 1710 in the nearby uh, township of, let's see, Chapelweight, this giant mansion uh, that this man inherits. And in this story, we find out that in 1710, a few decades before we find out that the pig founded the town, I guess. <laughs> Their first mayor. Jerusalem's yeah. lot exists and is abandoned. And the townships around it will not speak of it or go near it. Throughout this story, which interestingly enough is told through journal entries in the same way that the original Dracula story by Bram Stoker is written, we find out that Jerusalem's lot was in fact started in 1710 by a puritanical sect led by a man named James Boone. The town became an inbred cult devouted worshippers of a worm-like elder god, leading to the town mysteriously being abandoned in 1789, uh, between then and 1850, in which the events of the short story Jerusalem's Lot take place. So I was wrong. It takes place in 1780. Is this Lovecraftian? It is 100% a Lovecraft story. I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> it is an awesome story, but we find out that the evil in Jerusalem's Lot goes so much deeper. Ben, before you read Salem's Lot for our episode, mm. did you read Jerusalem's Lot? Uh, yes, I did. I'm curious how that might change your feelings about Salem's Lot. It actually, uh, even though it kind of contradicts a lot of things that the book Salem's Lot says about its history, it informs and it makes... Ben's theory more understandable because Ben has this theory that the Marston house is like a battery. He says it a few times throughout the book that it, it isn't haunted. There are no ghosts there. It is just all of the evil that happened in the Marston house. Uh, while Hubie Marston, who we'll get to lived there was stored there. And in the short story, Jerusalem's Lot, there is a, a sentence that says, There are spiritually noxious places, buildings where the milk of the cosmos has become sour and rancid. And that, that informs uh, this book, that it didn't start with the Marston House. It, Jerusalem's Lot, as a town, has always been doomed. The Marston House is it's just it's it's current focal point. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I think go that, read I, that short story. It's great. <laughs> I'll definitely read it. Uh, CM, do you want to talk about what happened at the Marston House? So we find out that the Marston House used to be occupied by Hubie Marston and his wife. I don't know. He had no. a wife. Anyway, <laughs> the mailman notices that they're you know they're not picking up their mail, so he goes to take it in and stick it between you know the two doors. And he realizes as he gets up there that something's wrong because all of their mail has not been picked up. And he goes around. I think he goes to the back door. Mm -hmm. He goes inside and there are flies everywhere because Birdie is dead. She was shot in the head in the kitchen. And they find out later that Hubie Marston hung himself upstairs in one of the bedrooms. 
They also find out later, which is the most interesting part, that had the mailman gone in the front door, he would have died because it was totally booby-trapped. Not the only booby-trap. The entire house is booby-trapped. And there's like thousands of dollars hidden in a wall somewhere. Yeah, yeah which bonkers. no one will know. Yeah, no one <laughs> ever finds it. And children disappeared in the town when that house was occupied by Hubie and Birdie. Was, I don't remember oh, how yeah, many so kids. Uh, a handful. Like three or four. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, we find out all of this information on the drive back into Salem's lot uh, because Ben has taken Susie. Susie. Uh, <laughs> let's diminish this poor woman more than Stephen King already has. Little Susie. Little Susie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mears and uh, Susan uh, went out to see a movie and they're driving back into town and he tells her uh, all about this history uh, that he's been doing research on for his book and he finally tells her the story of his relationship to this house. That when he was a kid, he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to be a bloody pirate. <laughs> what? He wanted friends. That's all it was. There was, was a new group kid of cool in town. kids who includes Floyd Tibbetts, who is um, Susan's guy that she had been going with. Who? What did you get? You guys expect a lot from Floyd Tibbetts because they build him up a lot. I expected pretty much what we got out of him. Okay. <laughs> uh, I expected him to become a main antagonist. Oh. Not so much. No. Anyway, uh, Susan, before she met Ben, had been going out with this Floyd Tibbetts. Well, Ben was friends with him as a kid, and they had this club called the Bloody Pirates. Uh, to run with this group of cool kids, they make Ben go into the Marston house. And little Ben, he he goes in and he's terrified. He goes upstairs and he goes into the room where Hubie Marston had hung himself and sees his green decaying corpse hanging and it opens its eyes and he beats ass out of there <laughs> before but he grabs a snow globe first because he has uh, to bring something back that's very important uh and it we know not. that because well, he still has a snow globe yes but yeah she she tells all this story susan basically asks him she's like do you, do you think it was ghosts and he's like i don't know probably it's <laughs> so we know how open-minded he is yeah, to the it supernatural becomes, uh, uh, maybe his his main quality is so completely immediately accepting of anything supernatural yeah he's like, very open-minded well it, that actually becomes the main theme of the book which we will get to in uh, in a little bit but we're where we have a lot of townsfolk to meet, so let's let's m- go ahead and move on. Uh, Unless you guys need to touch on um, uh, the, the nightcap and what is hands down the grossest first kiss in the <laughs> history. Uh, no, no, no. They, yeah, they just good. you don't they, you don't want to read. A, his oh lips God. were firm with the pressure of oh. his square teeth, Jesus. and there were a faint taste odor of rum and tobacco. She thought he's tasting me. Barf. (laughs) (laughs) I was with you on that one, Sam. Right there. Oh, super barf. Anyway. Uh, May I burn through some of these town folk? Yes, absolutely. We move on to chapter three and it is just a day in the life of the town. And I was so jazzed for this. And then I finished it and was like, why was I excited? (laughs) Really, the end of of the chapter is the best part. We'll we'll get to it. Yeah, burn through some Uh, of these. So, uh, a handful of the people we meet, we meet um, uh, Susan McDougal, who is a seventeen-year-old mother to a ten-month-old baby. The McDougal's down one of the worst people in the world. She straight up punches her baby twice in the face, and then remarks about how, "Oh, I'll have to tell uh, Roy Royce McDougal, her husband, that uh, that he fell down again." And I'll have to explain this later. Oh, I'll figure something out. Like, so this is this is a thing. This and she's awful. <laughs> that part was actually like I I had whiplash from this <laughs> <laughs> because uh, in the prologue in the the newspaper article that Ben reads, 
it mentions all the people that have gone missing in the mm-hmm. town. Yeah. And one of the things it says is it mentions the McDougals uh, who lost a child. And immediately in the prologue, I'm like, oh no, what happens to this kid? And then we like finally meet the McDougals and I'm expecting like, oh, they're going to make this character like, you know, really uh, heart-wrenching when he dis- Oh, and he's getting punched by his mom. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> what the fuck? All right, then we have Mike Ryerson, who is a grave digger who finds somebody has hanged his uncle's dog from the cemetery gates, which is not something you want to come into on your morning drive to work. Uh, we see Charlie Rhodes, who's the bus driver who, are, who kicks oh, two oh kids gosh. off the boat off the bus <laughs> for passing a note. That guy is hard. such a dick. <laughs> we go to the school where we see Mark, who will become a major player in this story later. Uh, we So we see Mark beating up the bully, Richie, uh, the school bully, and... It's too bad that we have to burn through these because <laughs> this scene immediately I was like, holy shit, Mark's a badass. Yeah. Like he is described as kind of this effeminate, lanky kid, and he just beats the fuck out of like the biggest kid in school. He like dislocates his shoulder. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then awesome. we don't see him again for another like 300 Even pages. though he's a better character than any character we've read about. Exactly. So yeah. He was, uh, later I was very on, excited about I that. have a note that says, why isn't this whole bar- book about Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't think we'd really touch back on Mark that much again. I'm so excited that he became a main character. Uh, we see Dud, who is the dump custodian, who is CM's uh, least favorite character because he shoots a bunch of rats motherfucker <laughs> and he imagines them as being townspeople which i thought was uh, just specifically ruthie crockett God, yeah uh and then we come around to uh straker rt straker who's the man who bought the marston house and the old village wash tub which was an old laundromat mm. uh oh, we and also the real estate guy yep oh, we missed a few larry uh, crockett yep yep who is uh not enjoyable to read about nope he is a real scumbag and states uh my favorite kingism of the book remarking on his secretary's quote delectable set of jahoobies (laughs) (laughs) my note followed up with just nope still no like delectable dong I'm going to write a book from a woman's perspective, (laughs) and it won't talk about men because we don't care. (laughs) Uh, We also missed Weasel and Eva. Eva, who Ben is renting a room from. Cool lady. Yeah, she's a super cool lady. Rents out a bunch of rooms. um, And Weasel Ed, who is uh, a tragic uh, alcoholic uh, also a cool guy, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I liked Weasel. Uh, we met, met Straker. <laughs> I wrote, Susan gets a haircut to nobody's having an affair. Ben looks at the house again. Snore. Uh, <laughs> that's probably 20 pages. Can I probably. admit something, though? Yes. Okay. So we meet Straker, and he's talking about his business partner, Kurt Barlow, yes. who is on a buying trip mm-hmm. somewhere. And he doesn't expect him back for a couple of weeks. And there's a point later where one of the characters is mentioning that Barlow's on a buying trip. And we, the the readers, know that's BS. But I just had this weird moment where I'm like, wait, but he's not even around. It can't be him. He's on a buying trip. <laughs> <laughs> you would be a vampire on the first night. Immediately. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> uh, so in... The talking about uh, Straker and Crockett's interaction. Now, I don't understand this real estate deal. I had to read it three times. I've so read it twice and plotting. I still don't. So he is, he says he is authorized to pay $1 for both the Marston House and the Village Wash Tub building. Mm-hmm. And he will pay no more than this dollar. He hands Larry a folder so... If he approves the deal, Larry gets the deed to land that a it's, mall is going to be built that on? That is worth $4 million. So he's really kind of paying $4 million for the property. Yes, under the table. And it is to get Larry under his thumb. He says this has a few caveats. And that caveat is... You're my bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it turns Larry into kind of his, uh, 
Straker and Barlow's, um, I don't know. I, I expect kind of like they're, a they're familiar, inside man, but yes, without that exactly. supernatural. And Josh, do you recall in the prologue it talks about Larry? Oh, does it? Yes, in in the same uh, newspaper clipping, it says that he he's missing, and it's probably to get out of this like uh, he shady left some yeah deal. some interesting real estate deals. Gotcha. And people yeah. there, the authorities are interested in talking to him. Yeah. So. Did, did, of all the characters that we meet here, I expected uh, Floyd, I expected to be a little bit bigger, but Larry Crockett, I expected to be also a main antagonist because they set him up exactly yeah. as a familiar. Yeah. He is under the thumb of, of our main villains. But, but I think that's because what happens, I mean, after... <laughs> After all this other stuff, it happens so fast that is true. that he gets what he needs out of Larry pretty quickly once they actually move into the house. That's true. And then he doesn't need him anymore because they they are quite adept at doing their thing. Yeah. And um, after we meet all of these characters, there are even more that we left out. But uh, at the very end of this chapter, uh, there's a mysterious figure in the graveyard who makes a sacrifice to the dark lord and says i bring you this and it becomes unspeakable that was cool and it was very cool <laughs> very foreboding and that's why i said that that's the best part of the whole chapter is this just after a boring day in the town uh, oh shit what the hell <laughs> And things go quickly after this. Yes. Yeah, the book really starts to pick up. Uh, because we we pick up, um, there are two kids, da- uh, Danny and Ralphie Glick, who had run through the woods to go visit Mark Petrie and uh, see his monster figurines. Yeah. Uh, and something terrible happens to him. And they stumble out of the woods. Uh, their parents are freaked out because they're hours late. Well, it's just the one. Yeah, Danny's the only right. one that comes back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Danny stumbles out of the woods because uh, Ralphie became unspeakable. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he just knows something bad happened, but he doesn't know what. So the town goes searching for him for five days, and they find nothing. And then Danny, like, they think, all right, well, you know, he's gone. And then Danny collapses and has to be hospitalized immediately. And nobody has any idea what's going on. And he gets very, very sick. Very, very sick. Gray skin. And uh, the, the sun is just too much for him. Mm-hmm. And he sleeps all day. And I don't know. Severe it's a, anemia? Severe okay? anemia. Yeah. It's a weird flu. He gets, yeah. like, a real weird <laughs> flu. <laughs> Um, meanwhile, uh, Larry Crockett gets contacted by Staker and says, you got to pick up some stuff from the docks. It is not suspicious at all (laughs) that there is a big, heavy box shaped like a casket. That has no markings on it. No, like, stamps from being shipped or anything. And he tells him he has to buy a ton of padlocks. And as they're delivering these things, they have to lock up all of these doors behind them. And... He's uh, one of the delivery men just so happens as they're delivering this big, heavy box shaped like a casket to the cellar. Nothing to read into there. (laughs) He thinks he sees a a kid's clothes. Yeah. Spalled in the corner. And Larry Crockett uh, essentially goes, no, you didn't. And then like pays him like 50 bucks. I forgot to pay you for your last job. No, you didn't. Yeah, Yeah, I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) Like really, uh, really shut that down real fast. Uh, oh yeah, and then and then Danny dies, or does he? No spoilers, Ooh. Ben. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at this point, uh, there, there's been this search. We a bunch of time skips by. Ben has been in town for twenty days. That's it, mm-hmm. and he is having dinner with uh, the Nortons, and. He gets along real well with uh, Susan's dad, but his mom, her mom hates him just for basically no reason. Like, he's just a new guy. He's an outsider. Yeah, she she liked Floyd and she she thought her daughter's life was planned out. And she's suspicious that Ben Mears is going to take her to the big city. 
Yeah, instead he takes her to the park. <laughs> and they have sex, and then she says, I love you within... 20 10, days. 20 days of knowing each other. She also Yeesh. says the super hotline, make it be good. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, does that really get guys going? Like, yeah, 100%. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, right? Susan. Oh, man, I was... Well, Planning on really turning in a par performance Doesn't here. Doesn't he but... ask her at the end, was it good? <laughs> yeah. Is it okay? Yeah. <laughs> then they walk home. Uh, ben finally tells Susan about the book he's writing. Because literally everyone is constantly asking him what his book's about. Like, that's going to tell them anything. Like, who cares? But he's writing about the Marston's house. Big duh. There is an interesting part, though, where he, he's been doing research and he finds out, he he contacts Bertie Marston's sister, who's this old woman living in, uh, she, she's senile, basically, he says. But he got her to talk, and she says that on the day that Bertie Marston was shot, she was miles away. And at the exact moment, she felt her sister get shot. And she passed out, and when she got up, she saw blood all over the kitchen before snapping out of it. Susan is like, you don't, you don't think that's true, do you? I mean, that you don't think evil's true? And Ben's like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, it's an, she's, an old, uh, she's an old senile old woman. Why would she make something up? <laughs> and that's why I'm like, Ben is a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> he believes everything at face value. Well, except for when Matt has some things to tell him. <laughs> well, this brings me to the most important thing I wanted to bring up. The main theme of this book. And I want to know if you guys caught on to this. Ben, after doing the do, drop <laughs> no. never call it that. No, I hate that. There's you sound like a soda commercial. Yeah. That's, there's a cut for you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so after he drops uh, Susan off at home, he goes to Dell's and he meets Weasel and Matt Burke, uh, who is a local high school English teacher and just an affable old man. Mm-hmm. And he's already heard about the re- like he already knows that Ben's <laughs> book is about the Marston House. Yeah, he just knows. Yeah. He just, he's just knows. Like, well, like, duh. Well, he's oh, yeah. been in the, library, been in the library. And like, Mabel Wirtz tells everybody. <laughs> yeah, tells everything. everybody. <laughs> and they get to talking. We immediately start to get a view of Matt's worldview. They're having a drink with Weasel, who's super drunk. He's an alcoholic. He's a veteran, and he he stumbles off drunk and ben and matt uh look after him and matt burke says uh a cynic might believe his life would have had more meaning if he had died in world war ii Mm. which is the saddest yeah and uh he he also says there's little good in sedentary small towns mostly indifference spiced with an occasional vapid evil or worse a conscious one shit i'm sorry do you guys think that when when he when Weasel stumbled off to the bathroom and it was just Matt and Ben sitting there, that everyone in the bar thought that they were lovers. <laughs> because anytime anyone's Why? talking about two men in this book, it's it's about how they're probably shacking up. <laughs> you guys catch any of that? <laughs> I did not catch that. <laughs> It's in it a lot, oh, like like five ooh. times no, at least. <laughs> the way you know they're not is because they weren't describing their tight jeans. <laughs> if they described Matt's neither Matt nor Mears have, have uh, a nice set of dongies. <laughs> uh, oh, um, so they when they get after they get uh, Weasel home. And, hold on, hold oh, on. Sorry, I, sorry. I, have, I have a point I'm oh, making. Oh, sorry. It's very important. <laughs> this is literally the the crux of the whole oh. book is Matt represents this cynical worldview. Like, he's a super nice guy, but he he kind of sees everything as he seems to in this part to, to represent the cynical worldview where he's like, yeah, there's bad in the world, but it's, it's, 
It's this, uh, like I said, vapid evil. It's it's mundane. It's people beating their children. It's a man beating his wife. And Ben has the opposite of this cynicism. Everything that he sees, he takes at face value. Yeah, there's probably a ghost in the Marston house. <laughs> Whatever. And it's just something going forward uh, in the second half of this book about cynicism versus belief. And this is the first uh, the first look we have at it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never pulled that from either of those guys. Yeah, yeah. I like that point, Ben. Yeah, uh, it comes up a lot in the second half. Anyway, yeah, you were saying. Oh, sorry. So we're getting to my favorite part of this first part, which is uh, Danny's funeral, which usually not something you would say is your favorite part of a book. Yeah, but a this child's funeral, funeral. This child's funeral is is crazy. It's where we're introduced to Father Callahan, who uh, is administering the funeral. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's such a, a representation of this small town life that the almost the entire town shows up to this funeral because everybody knows everybody. Uh, and, and it's this huge turnout and Mike, uh, after he's dug the grave leaves. Cause they're like, nobody wants to see the guy who dug the grave at the funeral. That's just, <laughs> nobody yeah. wants to think about that part. So he like, he pieces out for a while, but his dad has just a full breakdown and is like throws himself on the casket and he's telling Danny to come out and stop fooling around. Yeah. And it like broke my heart. It was intense. Like to Re- see this character who's like built up to be this, this strong head of household man. And he just loses it so hard. Mm-hmm. It was so heartbreaking. The prayer said over his casket, I am the resurrection and the life. The man who believes in me will live even though he dies. And every living person who puts faith in me will never suffer eternal death. Nothing to read into there. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) not. Absolutely nothing. But here's where it really jumps off. And it's so exciting. When the vampire story finally starts to vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, after the funeral, Mike comes back and he starts filling in the grave and then he just for some reason he feels compelled to like he's like I that kid is is looking at me through this casket lid. I can feel his eyes are open and they are on me and he jumps down. He digs out everything he's dug in. He uses a shovel to break open the lock just because he, he's he, he has to close Danny's eyes. He's got to close them. Opens the coffin and Danny looks alive. He still looks like he could be alive. And then Danny's eyes open. Sunset. Fucking awesome. Finally. <laughs> Finally, because like this whole lead up to this, it's like vampires. <laughs> we, we know there's vampires. He got vampires. He, 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 Danny Glick's dead. Vampires. Vampires. <laughs> And finally, at this point, the the sun, the countdown, and Mike losing time. It is so intense and so scary. It's a really cool scene. That character, Mike, is you don't want him to die. You want him to be this part of this team that you can tell is being assembled to fight mm-hmm. this big evil that only a select few people recognize is coming. Like, even if they don't consciously recognize it, something about them is different. They are better equipped to deal with it when it finally mm. reveals itself. That's a good, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So, uh, after our first vampire attack, um, we briefly meet Barlow for the first time as he visits Dud. The less we talk about this, the better. <laughs> because it's gross. It's super gross. Yeah. And Barlow promises dud his vengeance on a high school girl yeah and uh the chapter ends with father callahan after nightfall drunk and self-loathing and i only bring it up because of how important and how amazing of a character father callahan becomes in not only the second half of this book but uh in other realms as well 
Left. <laughs> Sorry. We'll, tower. we'll we'll get there. I the note that I made. I don't remember what Callahan said, but the note I made said Callahan wants to fight evil right in its fucking face. Yeah. yeah. Well, he that's he's, his existential crisis. He's, yes. He's not content with the um, social issues that the church is fighting currently. He wants old school monsters. It's, and that and plays evil. into my theory of this book being about cynicism versus belief. He wants old school. Old Testament belief, big letter, like capital letter evil is what he wants. But he's become cynical by being surrounded by the mundane evil of day to day life. Mm-hmm. He is the ultimate cynic of the book. And uh, the book turns into almost um, his his character arc is whether or not he can overcome his cynicism mm-hmm. once he finds out and finds what he wants, mm-hmm. the capital E evil that is Barlow. Anyway, Ben goes and teaches his Matt's class. These kids aren't going to eat me, are they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All this foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> Matt continues his cynicism. Uh, Nobody beats the system or won the game and only suckers ever thought they were ahead. Uh, Which is weird because he was introduced as like a super upbeat guy. (laughs) Um, uh, But then he invites Ben over for dinner. Spaghetti. Yeah. It was... uh, (laughs) What? I don't know. You just said it so matter of fact. Spaghetti. That's that's what you have when you have guests over. Yeah, spaghetti. Only treat them to spaghetti. And rock and roll. No specifics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's a a fun scene, them getting to know each other and and really, you can Mm. sense that like, these guys uh, are just became best friends. Mm-hmm. Like, and as a reader, I enjoyed spending that time with them. Yes. More so than uh, the McDougals, for example. Sure. Especially since Matt is already suspicious uh, that something strange is going yeah. on. Yeah. And they get on board with the plan of like, hey, let's, we should, uh, you know, you, me, and Susan, let's uh, get in the car. Let's go up to the Marston house, since that's what, you know, we're all kind of thinking. And just casually introduce ourselves to... It's to such a realistic approach. And it I really love it. Because it's like, it's what you would do. Like, all right, you you guys think something spooky? Let's just go find out. Yeah. It's that simple. But it's not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> because after Ben leaves, Mike heads to Dell's, the local watering hole, and finds Mike Ryerson looking very sick. And he had Mike when Mike was in school, and he's mm. fond of him. And he thinks that Mike is on some sort of drug. And they talk and Mike's like, no, I haven't, you know, I smoked pot like maybe a couple months ago, but (laughs) I am not on any drugs. I'm just really sick. I'm so sick that I fell asleep and I don't even remember filling in Danny's grave. Yeah. I ran into the woods because I thought I was going to get sunburn. Yeah. And so Matt takes Mike back to his house. Bad idea. Bad idea. (laughs) And Mike is in his guest room. And Matt hears him still awake. Well, he notices or, before he goes to bed two bite marks on Mike's neck, um, which is obvious. Uh, ticks. Yeah. He, <laughs> from he when fell, he ran into the forest. He fell asleep in the yeah. forest, yeah. and he, now he has Lyme disease. <laughs> and, Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so then Matt hears something in the middle of the night. He hears... Mike talking, he hears a window opening mm-hmm. and he hears a child's giggle. And, and he has sun. he has this feeling of dread and he has a Bible downstairs and he thinks, I can go downstairs, get the Bible, come back up, go into the room and banish whatever is in there. But he's just too scared. He's just an old dude and he's scared. But yeah, his same. cynicism <laughs> breaks because mm-hmm. in thinking where are my holy symbols? He he's he believes what he hears mm-hmm. uh, and does not doesn't question it. Yep. And he is afraid. So that brings us to the end of part one, the Marston House. And, uh, you know, listeners, I know at the beginning of this episode, we said we would be covering through chapter nine. But. Damn, there's a lot more to cover than we thought. <laughs> no kidding. So we are going to be calling it here. And if you're reading along, you're ahead. So join us next episode when we cover uh, part two and part three 
of Salem's Lot. That's right, people. Thank you so much for tuning in to Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn, reminding you that in America, even a pig can aspire to immortality. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to part one of Salem's Lot. Did you know that in addition to Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road, the fictional town of Jerusalem's Lot also appears in Stephen King's 2013 sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep. Stephen King's not the only one to come back to the lot. It also has a mention in The New Traveler's Almanac by Alan Moore, Lose Yourself by Eminem, and Serve the Servants by Nirvana. Did I miss any? Let us know on our Facebook at Dairy Public Radio. Check out our Instagram at Dairy Public Radio and Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also get in touch with us by email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And if you have a minute, we ask that you please give us a five-star review on iTunes. I know it's kind of a hassle and it takes a minute, but it's the only way to get on the charts, which is what helps other people find us. That's it for now, listeners. I'll leave you with my favorite quote from the book. The sandwich he made was bologna and cheese, his favorite. All the sandwiches he made were his favorites. That was one of the advantages of being single. Goodbye, listeners.